Hey there, askers. Now, as I thought about the intro to this episode, I realized that there's absolutely no way you call yourself askers, but maybe we'll come up with a clever name for this uh, group of listeners. So if you have any ideas, feel free to slide into my DMs. Anyway, welcome back to Asking for Myself, the podcast where I ask all the questions you're too afraid to. I'm your host, Mia Davis, the founder and CEO of Taboo. Today, I am joined by April Davis, who is the creator of The Vagina Blog. It's an amazing resource for all things vaginas, reproductive health, and more. I honestly had no idea where our conversation was going to take us, but I am beyond grateful for everything that I learned. And I definitely cringed a bit because there is so much we don't know about our bodies, and a lot of it is like mind-blowing, but it's so important and it's so empowering to learn. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, let us know if you have any questions we can cover in the future. Let's get into it. Okay, so do you want to, well, hello everyone. Do you want to um, introduce yourself? Sure. I'm April Davis and I own the Vagina Blog. Awesome. So I guess just like how did you get started? Why? I mean, it's such a like iconic name and I feel like I love your description on Instagram. It's like, the reason, or I want to be the reason people turn their phones away, right? Or on the, what is it exactly? Yeah. It's, it's when you slightly t- tilt your phone away from others when you're scrolling. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I love that. So how did you just like come up with the concept? What made you want to kind of dedicate a really significant portion of your life and time to vaginas? Um, so I, it's a long story. I'll try to tell you the short version. <laughs> a background in emergency medicine And um, that was my first exposure to childbirth and everything that went along with it. Um, After I had my second baby, I actually went into work uh, with a nurse midwife as her assistant. And so I kind of had like the medical skill set. And then so funny, I started looking at different doula programs at the time, too. I really wanted to become a doula. And I'd already read the entire library and had attended a couple births of friends and things at that point. And so stepping into work with Cindy, the, the nurse midwife that I worked for, uh, you know, getting a couple births under my belt and getting rolling with that, I quickly started taking my own clients as a doula as well. Um, and then this has just always been a natural fascination of mine. You know, I, I've always loved uh, one of my favorite books, even when I was very first sexually active and married, was The Guide to Getting It On, which is a textbook used by many human sexuality courses. And so uh, I loved all of this. And once you start hanging with midwives and doulas, you start learning more about your cycles and menstruation. And then, you know, the nurse midwife I worked for does gynecological care. She was our NP at Planned Parenthood at the time. So then I was seeing a lot of birth control and planning and, you know, things like that. And so I, I did that for five years and I was pregnant with my third and I have really difficult pregnancies. And so I kind of had to retire and coming out of all that, I, Decided it was kind of time to hang up my hat in terms of birth work. I miss it every day still, but I I just, I was like, I have this wealth of knowledge. What in the world am I supposed to do with it? And I had been working in my other life. I'm also a photographer and a videographer and a designer. And so, and I'd been working as a, a, a women's health consultant for a couple bloggers at that point and just decided it was time. So the vagina blog was born. That's amazing. With like all the experience and exposure you've had to birth, um, I guess I haven't experienced birth yet myself. Um, And I think a lot of people have a lot of 
well, two things. One, I feel like a lot of people aren't necessarily honest fully about their experience with pregnancy and childbirth. And then because of that, I think some people don't have any idea what they're getting into most. And then on the other side, um, I know for me, I'm kind of like afraid of the experience. So I guess like what, one, like what does it really mean to be a doula? What's the difference between that and a midwife? And then is there a difference? And, um, <laughs> and then like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, then, um, and then, yeah, like, what are, like, what, what advice or what kind of knowledge do you have for people who are like, I don't know, I don't have any clue, like, where to begin? Probably the biggest thing I always like to start with, we, we really, we're so fear-based when it comes to birth, especially here in the United States. And birth is empowering. And we have ruined that. We've made it, you walk away a victim a lot of time. A lot of people do. Something I loved um, working in home birth, when you decide to deliver at home, you own everything. You're choosing who's going to be there. You're choosing who's going to provide your care. Uh, you're choosing where and how you deliver. It's it's a lot. It's actually a lot to take on because when you walk into a hospital system, all of your choices are made for you. And anything that happens to you, you can blame on them. And so taking that ownership when you deliver at home, it's intimidating, I think, sometimes. Um, and obviously, there's so many reasons why you would need to deliver in one area or another. I, I love, I had my third at home. I obviously love home birth, but I also love a good hospital system. Um, it was really difficult. So while I was working as a nurse, uh, a birth assistant, I also was working as a doula. So a doula has no medical capacity whatsoever. A midwife's there in a medical capacity doulas are there strictly as a labor support. You're, we're there to essentially be what aunts and grandmas and sisters used to be, right? When, when we had villages, we're just fulfilling that role that your village used to fill of, of coaching your partner on how to best squeeze your hips, on making sure everyone has all their, I mean, I, it was interesting. I remember I went on one birth and this really, it changed things for me because I got there, she's in the hospital, and she said, it's weird. Ever since you've been here, they've been explaining stuff to us, and they've been talking to us a lot more. And it, it really shook me because I was like, that shouldn't be different because I'm here. But the reality is in our current healthcare system, that's kind of the truth. And so one of the reasons I recommend a doula is they understand all the lingo. They can help explain what's going on. They also can help um, assist you with like questions to ask. I had one of my good friends was she labored and labored and labored and labored and labored and got to attend and things weren't progressing. And, uh, her doctor was so fantastic, but was looking at a C-section and thankfully sat down and was discussing this with her instead of being like, well, we just have to do this. I don't care what you think, you know? And so she's just looking at me like lost. And it was like, okay, let me tell you all the questions you could potentially ask right now about this major surgery you're about to have, you know? So it's, you're the one that's like in the right headspace. You're not in labor. You know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you want a doula. You want someone that's coherent, you know, and partners can't always be that because they're just as invested as in what's going on as the person in labor. Right. So anyway, I think doulas are so important. I think the work that they're doing is so important and, um, yeah, we, we've got to start changing some of our attitudes around birth. One of the reasons and, and driving forces behind the vagina block too for me is, you know, I you look at statistics of what's happening in maternal mortality rates here 
in our country. And we are seeing more people dying in childbirth than we did back when our moms were having babies, right? Which is insanity. We live in the United States. That's crazy. That shouldn't be happening. And it is disproportionately happening to people of color, which is also so unacceptable. But what I'm finding is a lot of people are going in, the, the, the standard of care starting at 18 and at 14 and at when you go in and say, okay, I think I need to be on birth control. And your doctor goes, okay, I've decided this is the birth control that you need to be on. And this is what you're going to do. And so one of the things I want to do with a vagina blog is start, let's start having those conversations with our care providers and standing up for ourselves at 18. So then when we're pregnant at 30, we're well accustomed to pushing back and going, no, it's my body. It's my body. That's it's my choice. It's my body. You don't get to decide what we're doing with X, Y, and Z. And being very comfortable in that position as a pregnant, you know, while you're pregnant, um, where maybe you wouldn't have been given how things have kind of gone in the past. And so I just I want to empower everyone. Informed consent is is the gospel. I will preach until I die. I want everyone to understand what they're signing up for what's going to happen to their bodies and how to get that information that's true and reliable and accurate. Totally. I feel like another aspect of that is like not only having the information, but actually like if you from a younger age start to actually understand what's going on in your body, then you can actually connect with like what, how things feel and like what Mm -hmm. is happening throughout your cycle. Because I feel like even if you kind of know, or you've heard of something or you have read about it, I think a lot of people don't trust themselves mm-hmm. and they don't trust that this is, oh yeah, my body must be off. And they would re- like, yeah, of course you would trust someone with all this medical experience who's your doctor, who has been, you know, this is their profession. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it a lot easier to just kind of like put your body and your birthing experience or your whatever aspect of sexual health mm-hmm. in their hands yep. when, um, and I think there's this, I remember on taboo doing a post like a tweet about um someone saying like like the doctor saying like i have x amount of medical experience and then the other person saying well i have you know x amount of years living in my body and there was so much engagement around that because a lot of like medical professionals were like yeah that's true but like you know relying on google and like getting all this information actually is just isn't always reliable and it might totally lead you in the wrong direction. And to some extent, of course, you have to like, trust them. Yeah. But on the other hand, like if you're advocating for yourself and saying, I really don't think this is right. Um, and I kind of think about it as thinking about it as like a partnership, like we're both working together to find the right solution. It's not, should not like one against the other. But I guess like, um, it's a really long winded way of like, saying, how should and can people navigate that when it's like, I really think this is going on. But then the doctor saying something else. Um, and I think that's the benefit of having like a doula or someone, but you're not always having someone in the room. I know some people say even at for like a gynecological appointment, you can have a nurse or you can ask a friend even, or you can ask someone else to be there with you. But you know, in reality, you may not always. Yeah. So would you advise that? I guess that's number one. Would you say you should always have someone with you? And then also like, what can you really do to kind of, you know, like have it be more of a partnership? Um, hire good care providers. I think that's the the biggest one. Uh, something that I love deeply about the midwifery model of care is that uh, midwives tend to trust people. They trust women. They trust people about mm-hmm. their own bodies. And Whereas obstetrics is the medical management of 
birth. That's, mm-hmm. that's what obstetrics mm-hmm. is, you know? And so what I want to see is, is trusting and listening to women when they talk about their bodies and people when they talk about their bodies and we aren't seeing that enough. And it is very frustrating. Um, so I, I recently just did a post on, you know, questions and answers. You're deciding what, a birth control method is going to be right for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great list. It's a really long list of, of different things to help you kind of narrow that down. But w- what happens so often, the message that I get all the time from people is I went into my doctor's office. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went in hoping to have a discussion with them. And then they said, well, let's just give you the shot. And then I got the shot and now I'm reading about it. And oh my gosh, what did I just put in my body? And I'd been in that situation at a very young age. It was terrifying. And so mm-hmm. I, I look at that and I'm like, how can we prevent this? Well, we have to talk about it beforehand. We have to read about it beforehand. Um, one thing I told her on too, that's, it still cracks me up. If you go Google the Depro Provera pamphlet, you will get the exact copy of the pamphlet that they send you home with after you get the shot. That shot, that, that pamphlet has to be medically accurate. It's from the company, right? It has the longest and most exhaustive list of side effects and possible concerns. So if you've already read that before you head into your doctor's office, you're going to have a much more productive conversation with them, which just circles right back around to informed consent. And so it's not even that you have to have a doula or a partner or someone there with you when you go in. It's that it might require doing some homework beforehand before you go in and not thinking that you're going to go in and have a discussion with your doctor about what to do and realizing you're probably, because my other frustration, the longer I've been the the vagina blog, the more disheartening it's been really concerning because I also have healthcare providers messaging me and saying, well, you can't tell women they can't be on birth control. Right. Like I, I didn't anticipate that ever in a million years that I would ever get a message like that. And I've gotten many messages like that from people. I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. I'm an OBGYN. I'm a, you can't tell. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but why, what do you think is going to happen? What is it that you think is going to happen if everyone stops taking artificial hormones? Like we're not all going to go out and get pregnant tomorrow. That's not, right. you know? And so it shocked me and continues to shock me how much control doctors believe they should have over their patients, especially their female ones. It's really concerning. It is. And I feel like also they've been given certain messages, right, in their education. And I was reading a post the other day that I thought actually made me kind of take a step back because it was about like um, birth control shaming Uh and kind of the idea that there are a lot of people in the wellness community. And um, I know I've been on trying, you know, more of a teaching people, informing people about like non-hormonal options. Yeah. Um, Then also like having that level of understanding about access and not every, that's not for everybody. And there's so many reasons why it wouldn't make sense to be, to use non-hormonal options. Um, And at the same time, it's like, I just always get so frustrated because I just feel like I wish there were more options. I think that's where I end well, And up people are throwing shame on both sides. A lot of people exactly. run in and tell their doctor, hey, I want to get off birth control. And they're well, you're being a bad girl. Good girls take birth control because they're responsible. Mm-hmm. But then when you mm-hmm. switch over into the natural family planning communities and fertility awareness method, whole other basket of like, how dare you consider getting back on contraceptive drugs? How could you even? And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because I have to check my own privilege all the time in this area. I'm married. 
we I, we have three kids together. My husband has a vasectomy. Like I could not be in a better position in terms of not having to deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in a long-term credit relationship with someone who can't get me pregnant. Like life is good. And so I have to take those rosy glasses off sometimes and be like, 18 year old me, however, you know, and 20 year old me needed to be on birth control and chose to do IUDs and chose to do, I've been on depo, I've been on the pill, you know, I've been through all these things. And so, and I get it. So that's, what's hard is I'll, you know, every time I talk about doing natural family planning or any of that type of stuff, I get a lot of flack from people that I'm teaching people to be irresponsible. And as soon as I start talking about birth control, they're like, how could you tell everyone they need to be poisoning their bodies? You can't win. You have to do it for you. really, really bad. And from even my own self, I went off of um, the pill mm-hmm. and like a couple of years ago because the side effects were just really, yeah. really not worth it. And then recently, I'm starting to think about like what what do I do and like what should I use? And then thinking about do I really want to like one? Do I trust enough that I'm going to be diligent enough to actually like totally. take my temperature every day and then like believe also like what I'm you know it's like a lot of self-trust yep. and knowledge and accountability. Um, and it's just like, do, do I even want to have this be my life? Yeah. Um, which is a big question. But then on the other hand, you know, do I want to go back to the side effects? No. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a tough decision. And it's funny because it's also interesting where things intersect with like what I'm preaching every, not preaching, but like, educating yeah. about every day, providing information about every day, and then like being the real person mm-hmm. living life and thinking like, okay, totally. how does this yeah. yeah. But this, this is the beginnings of these types of decisions. You know, um, what, what am I comfortable eating or drinking during my pregnancies? How am I going to deliver? Am I going to use drugs during my delivery? Am I going to breastfeed? What's breastfeeding going to look like for me? Like it's, it's this, I feel like, especially with these female bodies, we have big decisions we have to make all day long, every day. And the reality is there are risks on both sides, which is why you just can't cast judgment on anybody or yourself when you're going through this. Because like I did Marina IUDs knowing full well that they weren't great for me. I still have lasting side effects from them, but at the time they were the right thing to do. They just were. And that's okay. You know? Yeah, no, totally. I think that's great advice. Do you feel like your experience, like being a doula, how did that, you were a doula before, or wait, uh, during which period in life, before, after, or during having children? During. I mean, it's after. I'd already had two, and then I, I got pregnant after afterwards as well. So what? how would you compare sort of like the two experiences that you had beforehand, and then your final, like, do you feel like having had all that information, having experience with all these other people giving birth, like, how did that change things for you? So it's, it's really funny. I, I, one thing I'm so grateful for, I never went screaming out of the hospital, like, oh my gosh, I've been horribly injured. I'm so grateful for that. I know too many people who that has been their experience. So I read everything I could get my hands on before I had my first baby and was pretty nuts. I I interviewed doctors. I was obsessive about a couple specific things. At the time, episiotomies were still so common and like just a normal routine thing. And so that was my biggest thing is I wanted someone who wasn't going to cut me unless I needed to be cut. So I wanted to talk episiotomies and C-sections with every doctor. What's an episiotomy? So that is when they cut your perineum, which is the tissue between your uh, vagina and your anus. So any of that tissue kind of in that area, um, if your baby isn't progressing as quickly as they would like, 
um, especially a lot of these older male doctors, they still cut them routinely. It's gross and horrible and they don't heal well. That does not sound pleasant. It's not good. It's not good. In fact, uh, it's funny. One of my biggest whys, my hard why for why, what I come back to whenever anyone says anything about the vagina bog or what I'm doing or whatever else, because I get all sorts of fun shame thrown on me all day long about all the things. I was a doula at a birth once and young mom, first baby, she had only been pushing for like 20 minutes, which is not a long time for a first mom. Old white doctor, she, who she transferred to, male, I mean, just old as crap. And he cut her. And if you've ever snipped chicken breast with kitchen shears, when you do a necessary episiotomy where they've been pushing for a little while, it's paper thin tissue. It's typically minimal damage. And I have seen scenarios where it was necessary and it was such a good thing. This was not one of those. He snipped right deep down into the tissue of her vagina. And I just remember witnessing it. And I I tried, I was like, what are you doing? And he was just, oh, I think she needs this. And she kind of looked at me and like, when it comes down to it, I only have as much power as a doula can have. And so watching, and like, she's permanently damaged because this old guy didn't want to wait around for her to have a baby. So what can people do in that scenario? Say no. Say no. That's what I would want to see for an episiotomy. I want to see mom in distress or baby in distress. So if your baby's heart rate's tanking and it's a serious, then yeah, by all means. I mean, for me as a mother, snip into my vagina. I want my kid to live, right? But that was not what was happening. No one was in distress. There was no emergency. There was no. And so that's where it gets tricky. Like there are, there's a time and a place where episiotomies are great. We had a, I remember at another birth, we had a mom that had been pushing for like three hours. She was exhausted. She was done. And her perineum had just stretched to its limit and just wouldn't tear. And so it's, and you don't always tear, but some people do. And mm-hmm. it just wouldn't. And so the midwife I was with went, tink, with a little itty bitty snip, baby was born on the next push. And you're just looking at it like, see, this is okay. I'm totally cool with this. Everyone consented to what was happening. Like, and if you talk to your mom or your grandma, or your mom, they probably had routine episiotomies. Like that just was the normal way to like get a baby here yeah. quickly because doctors didn't want to have to sit around and wait for people to push a baby out. It's horrific. The doctor telling you kind of what they're doing as they're doing it. Sometimes. Right. Not always. Because I feel not like always. that happens a lot where you don't even know what is happening, yep. like is going on. And you kind of are just like, I assume <sighs> this is yeah. what you're you doing something. See. It's a stressful moment in life when you're pushing Mm -hmm. your baby out. And so it is a very vulnerable moment of trust. And you really do need to be with someone that you trust with your life and with your baby's life. And because I I just don't want anyone cutting up my body unless it's for a good reason, you know? And so with my first baby, that was my biggest question is like, how, how often do you see section people and how often do you do episiotomies? And my first doctor was like, I consider delivery a success if the baby comes out of the vagina and no one gets cut. And, he, and I was like, you're hired. <laughs> and he was great. He was just a normal standard OB. My, with my pregnancy was really difficult. He didn't catch that I was dying until I was an organ failure. I have HG. I can't keep food down while I'm pregnant. And so at least he caught it. And once he caught it, he was very aggressive treating me. So that's great. Um, but it just, you know, kind of out of tune old guy, just like, La la la, you know, but I had a, I had a really great delivery. I walked away from it. Good. I just was, as I walked away, I was like, I want to do that differently next time. I I don't, I had, I got an epidural and I did not like it. I don't like 
being numb. I think I have an aversion to it. And so I was like, I don't, I won't try and not have an epidural next time. And I just want to do things a little differently. So I hired a midwife with my second and um, delivered in hospital, unmedicated, stayed in the tub the whole time, had this really empowering experience and it was beautiful. And so that really is what spurned me wanting to head into becoming a doula. And I did soon after that. But like I said, by the time I got to that point, I'd already read entire libraries of everything doulas would read. I'd studied up everything you could on childbirth. I mean, it was crazy. And so my third, having my third at home was magical. What was it like not having the epidural as far as like pain? I would do it that way every single time. Yeah. I know that everyone gets really caught up in the pain and you guys, it hurts so bad. (laughs) So it's not like, but it's like one of those things where like it's pain you can do or at least I could, I, I do look at some people and I think I just, it's, it's that special, that very fine line between pain and suffering. We want to keep you on the pain side of the the line. And once you head into suffering, maybe you can suffer for a little bit, but if you're suffering long-term, then let's talk about doing an epidural. Let's talk about doing some sort of relief, you know, because I don't think anyone should suffer miserably through their labors and, and their deliveries. And so is there a point you know, where it's too late or Hmm? Is there a point at which it is too late to get one? Yeah, I mean, if you're pushing them out, you don't want to get right, them right. out. There's no reason. You already passed the hard part. The funny thing that we don't talk enough about in labor, too, is so contractions hurt terribly. But in between contractions, you're completely fine. They go away, especially if you're not being messed with. If you're not on Pitocin, if you're not having all these other inner, you know things happening to you that would cause things to mess up or, or be out of line of where they naturally would be it's weird because like, and I loved it as a doula because you'd be like talking to someone, just having a conversation like we are. And they'd be like, okay, just a minute, have a contraction for a minute, come back. We go right back into talking, have a contraction for a minute. That's how most labors go all the way through until transition. Then things get really nasty for a little while. Then you push baby out. And like, there is nothing more satisfying than pushing out a baby. It is the greatest, also most painful feeling in the world. I, I just, I would do it. I just love it. I can't be pregnant again ever. It's the worst for me, but the delivery is the best. It's just, I love it. And it's so empowering. Like, and you can't, it's, it's empowering no matter what. I, and I really truly believe that I look at my friends. I just, I consider people who go through C-sections and emergencies warriors because that is so much to take on. It is a major surgery and it typically is under stressful conditions. And so there's, you know, but for me personally, I have loved my unmedicated births. No, I think I already feel a million times better. Have you seen any media <laughs> like TV or movie that does it well in terms of like depicting birth and or the process leading up to it? Because I feel like it's always the exact same um, water breaks. Like. Oh my gosh, her water broke and she's having heart contractions and now the baby's coming out of her and it all happened in two minutes. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like the office. Okay. They did an excellent job. I love that her water breaks and then she keeps, you know, she stays at work. She changes her outfit and stays at work. Right. And she keeps working until she's like, Oh man, I can't talk through my contractions. They're coming every two minutes. And then I love that she doesn't have the baby till the next day. Because a lot of times on first babies, that's kind of how it goes. You think it's going to be this like crazy whirlwind. And in reality, it's a lot more like that, you know? And so I think they did. I was really proud of them for doing such a good job portraying what it actually kind of, 
we don't see her deliver, which I'm actually, I love that they did that too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I think they nailed that a whole two, you know, two part. Nice. Okay. okay good. I'm, I'm always glad to hear of like, and it's funny that so there's like a few. <laughs> like, yeah, it, let me think of one example. Seriously. Um, okay. So that's all like stuff I have clearly uh, not that much knowledge about and clearly need more knowledge about. Um, yeah. I guess like, and this is sort of related to birth control too, like how much anecdotal information in terms of like people sharing their stories and their experiences do you think is useful versus like everybody's different and it's not like necessarily reliable like I think it's super I don't know I'm curious your perspective because I do feel like it's super helpful to hear from other people but then at the end of the day like everybody's so different that you know it may not be applicable to you at all you know, I think anecdotal's great. I, I love hearing people's stories. I think if you're pregnant, tell everyone unless they have something good to say to shut up and go away. <laughs> I hate it. Like when you walk around pregnant, you walk around as a beacon that just summons people to come in and explain how they almost died just all day long. And it's funny because like being, especially when I was working for a nurse midwife doing home birth, so many people are like, well, if I would have had my baby at home, I would have died. And I'm like, Oh, guess what? If you say that statement to me, I now have to know details about every single part of your birth because that's probably not true. People seem to think that midwives just want to kill people. That's just really what they want to do. And I'm like, you realize there's a long list of reasons you get risked out of a midwifery practice because they don't want you to die at home. They actually don't want that. There's a lot of things they have in place so that that doesn't happen because no one wants you to die at home. (laughs) Some people like, my baby was premature. I'm like, oh, you're automatically not allowed to have a home birth if you go into labor before 37 weeks. Okay. Well, I had this happen. Guess what? She would have known that way before you went into labor. Well, I had... Would have known immediately as soon as you went into labor. I had preeclampsia. Yeah, would have caught it and sent you to the hospital, you know? And so when you're pregnant, it is like you're a magnet for these terrible stories of how everyone died. So I I tell everyone in their pregnant state, just tell people that unless it's a really beautiful, empowering story that you actually don't want to hear it until after your baby's born and that they just have to be okay with that. I feel like it seems like it's just a welcome, like an un solicited every kind of advice every kind of comment Mm -hmm. (laughs) like oh the things people have said to me pregnant too you're like what is wrong with you why why are you doing this and and I think the same goes for birth control too I mean if you say I have an IUD people will line up to tell you about how they almost died because of their IUD or how they got pregnant because of their IUD but no one's lining up to tell you that they had a great experience with all three of their IUDs and it was no big deal right you know so that that's what's that's what's so difficult. So I, I definitely think if you have trusted friends that you love and adore or, and especially if it's a member of your family, like if your mom is like, look, I really have a bad reaction to estrogen. That might be one to listen to because they have the same body makeup mm-hmm. as you, right? As far as every single random stranger on the internet or people who come up and talk to you in Walmart. <laughs> Not <laughs> <Maybe. that right>. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be as worried about that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Are you listening to this episode thinking to yourself, you know, I'm not sure I'm so ready for pregnancy right now or ever. Choice is key. Well, have I got a solution for you? Non-hormonal, convenient, accessible, and the only birth control method that can protect against STIs. 
yes, I'm talking about condoms. Yep, condoms. Condoms really do not get enough love, and that's probably because they aren't always the most comfortable. But with the right condom and a bit of lube, sex can be amazingly pleasurable. You may know of one condoms from their round shape and clever designs, but did you know that they launched a line of condoms called My One Perfect Fit? With 60 different condom sizes, combinations of 10 lengths and nine widths, you can definitely find the right fit for your penis or your partner's penis. 96% of guys would recommend My One Perfect Fit. No more excuses and no more discomfort. Don't believe me? Here's a word from one of their customers. Hi, my name is Topher Smith, and I would like to explain why I love the My One program so much. I'm not a small guy. Finding clothing and shoes that have fit me has always been an issue. Uh, hell, I, I didn't even know shoes existed in wide sizes until my mid-twenties. I, I lived my entire life going through just buying shoes that were way too long to fit my needs. Uh, my One is exactly like that. And once I found out there were customized options that truly made for a perfect fit, my entire sexual world shifted. No more reaching for those gold wrappers just because they said XL on them but still felt like they were going to cut circulation off. I had finally found my dream fit. There's too many guys out there who hate condoms because of a bad fit robbing them of sensation and thinking that's all the world has to offer them. I absolutely believe that if everyone had a chance to find their fit, we would see condom use skyrocket. It's a win for everybody. Now, if that's not a recommendation, I don't know what is. What would you say is in your experience and in the people that you've worked with, to the extent to which you're comfortable sharing, what's the process of post-birth vagina? What is that like? And then also on like the sort of like body image and just like comfort with self, sexuality, what is that like post-birth um, or even during pregnancy? Like how do things start to shift and how did how do you um, or have you thought about things and what what have you seen with other people? So postpartum healing is so different for other people. And what's even more obnoxious about that is it's even different baby to baby. I feel like my first, um, after my first child, I was like a solid six weeks of like needing to heal. I quit bleeding probably two or three weeks. Well, no, it was a longer bleed. I want to say a blood maybe four or five weeks actually with my first. So longer bleeding. And is that like period? Like similar, similar to period? It's, weird. it's like a light pink. So you're like bleeding mm -hmm. this like, and plus some random clots. And so it's called mm -hmm. lochia. And it's like this mucousy, liquidy, bloody mess. <laughs> and it starts out really heavy. Sometimes you'll you'll pass clots up to the size of like a baseball or a softball if you've been laying down for a little while, which is really just the things you're like, I never thought I would see a blood clot that big. I didn't know that was possible. Now I know. <laughs> and now we, don't, know. We, don't, we don't talk about this enough, right? We don't talk about what happens after birth enough. You can't use anything internal. So you have to wear pads or diapers or I love period panties are so great for postpartum after those first initial days. Typically the first two or three days after are the worst. Even if you have a C-section, you will have this bleeding, this lochia and discharge. And so um, after that, and it, it depends on how you deliver, I will see, and I actually, I want to go look into it a lot more. I do feel like epidurals cause you to bleed longer. I don't know why. 
just as I've surveyed friends and gone through it myself, I do feel like there's got to be some sort of correlation between those two things. Because even when I was working in home birth with only on Medicaid births, we'd have people whose bleeding would be tapering off after the first week. So granted, it depends on the delivery too. And if you're anemic, you bleed longer. So with my first, I wasn't sexually active for six weeks after I had just quit bleeding. And I actually, I start menstruating, even though I exclusively breastfeed, I always start menstruating again in about eight weeks postpartum. It's just, it drives me crazy because all my friends, 15, 16 months of breastfeeding, no period. Yeah. And here I am like finishing my postpartum bleeding just to start menstruating again. It is so aggravating. So that is a thing. Even if you exclusively breastfeed, that can happen. And so you actually can have your fertility return too before you get a period. A lot of people don't realize that as well. So if you are sexually active after having a baby, even if you're breastfeeding, never count on that being actual birth control. (laughs) The midwife I worked for had two different women come into her practice, pregnant at six weeks postpartum. Wow. That can happen. How does, how would being on birth control, can you, then when would it be, let's say you are taking um, a hormonal birth control, like when would it be advised to six weeks start? Six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So it's their standard, standard practice right now is, you know, you deliver, you typically see one a couple days after, some a couple days after. A lot of providers see you at two weeks and then again at six weeks. Some providers just see you again at six weeks. But either way, six weeks is usually when you sit down and have the birth control discussion. That's usually typically when they clear you for intercourse as well, depending on your delivery and like what you're comfortable with. And so with my first, could like really didn't want to have sex. Like intercourse wasn't even interesting to me until six weeks postpartum. And um And yeah, I had an IUD placed and healing was so standard. It was a nice gradual, like I felt really beat up, but healed really well. With my second, I was having intercourse at two weeks postpartum. No big deal. Felt great about it and had like no damage. Stopped bleeding after a week. Like just easy breezy. It was like, this is unreal. And it really was like, I was back at the park with my toddler and my newborn, like a week postpartum. No big deal. My third, I was pretty anemic. I bled for eight weeks and intercourse was like not even something I was interested in. And it made me so angry because I like started to taper off postpartum bleeding. And then all of a sudden it kicked back up really hard. And I went into my midwife and I was like, I'm just bleeding. I'm bleeding like I'm dying. And she like went in and checked. She's like, so this is your period. I haven't even stopped bleeding from having the baby. She's like, yeah, now you're menstruating. And I was like, you've got to be kidding it was so bad. <laughs> so I've had three totally different recoveries and I'm the same yeah. person. Mm-hmm. It looks a little different for everyone, you know, and in terms of like what kind of damage, like if you had serious tearing or had an episiotomy or had a C-section, um, that's going to change things too. Yeah, that's definitely, because I guess you, in that sense, you can't really know fully what to expect. No, it, you can kind of, yeah, you kind of get this like it. list. It's like birth control too. Though. I mean, it's like a lot of these things right. where it's just like, here's your list of possible side effects. Have fun. <laughs> when the, it, it's side effects for like literally 90% of the commercial. <laughs> for real though. That's postpartum too. <laughs> yeah. As far as, you know, body love, um, I just... I think for me, I'm so grateful for the delivery of my kids because I gained a new respect for my body that I'd not had previously. 
um, going through that experience, suddenly I, I respected myself and I respected my body. So what I looked like kind of took a backseat to how much I respected and loved my body after that experience. And so I always encourage people to lean into that feeling. It's hard though, because so many people walk away feeling broken or like a victim or like they've been beat up. And it really makes that portion of it so much more difficult. And so I always want to encourage anyone who goes through this experience to find ways to love your body, find reasons to love your body as you go through it, regardless of what happened, regardless if you you had a really difficult or horrible experience, find find ways to find love for yourself because they they're there if you look for them. Yeah, I think that's great. I've also heard of like and I don't know if this well I've actually heard from people that I know, so I don't know if this is necessarily a myth, but like partners who may struggle with their partners, the pregnant partner's new body, whether during pregnancy or uh, after pregnancy, and um, maybe even make comments that are obviously not helpful or constructive or thoughtful or compassionate. Um, But to some extent, like, I guess, well, no, I mean, my opinion is no, do not make these comments, but I'm trying to have some empathy for people who on the other side of things are like, you know, this is a totally new experience for them as well. Um, And I would imagine most of pregnancy is focused on the pregnant partner in terms of like the, even the conversations you're having, people asking questions, the doctor who, who like, who people are more concerned with is the pregnant partner. So I guess, do you have any um, words of wisdom or thoughts around like partners of pregnant people and sort of like how they can be a part, be more part of the experience, how they can also um, love their partner's body? You know, curiosity, I think going curious, and this is my advice for anyone struggling with anything in terms of sex. Uh, sometimes we approach a lot of this stuff with either judgment or fear or anxiety or, you know, all this other stuff. None of those make for good sex. Right. But going in curious, so fun, so fun. Uh, Like, and something else that we don't talk enough about, like I vaginal orgasms were not a thing for me until after I had my kids. We talked so much about all this terrible damage that happens to our vagina through childbirth. But I mean, it's not always all bad. Some of it can be good and a lot of it heals. I, I had a really nasty mm-hmm. skin split up past my clit with my third and it took a little while. But then it was also like, okay, so that's kind of painful. So my clitoris is not an option right now. What else can we do? What can we do to help heal that? What can we do to help massage that or work on it? And like CBD lube was such, mm-hmm. once again, it was this curiosity instead of being like, I'm broken now. It was, okay, so this is not working the way that it used to. How can we approach this differently? you know, and kind of play with it. And so I love Emily Nagoski, who wrote Come As You Are, mm-hmm. talks a lot about going in with curiosity. And I love that mindset for life, but especially for sex. And I remember like one of my good friends, they had their first baby and he's like, um, no one told me that breast milk would be spraying in my face and that it would taste good. What? <laughs> he just, he was like, this is the coolest thing, you know? And I yeah. love but he just was just curious and was just like, Oh my gosh, like how come we're not talking about this more? This is so cool. You know? Do you think people are nervous to even share the positive things? Like I feel like, yeah, I can see people not wanting to 
talk about that <laughs> or feeling weird reason, about liking. We, yeah. We love to talk about train wrecks over happy mm-hmm. things, you know? And, and I do, I think people get weirded out when they're like, waiting, what do you mean your partner likes breast milk? You know? <laughs> and it's like right. spraying out of me when I orgasm. So we all like breast milk now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's on the menu. It tastes like, seriously, if you've had a bowl of cereal and the milk at the bottom of the bowl, that's like kind of sweet. Cereal milk. Cereal milk. I made that out of my boobs (laughs) on tap. (laughs) Down to the fridge at night. (laughs) Well, probably so the funniest with me first, I had to pump a lot because I was working full time Mm -hmm. and I ate an entire bag of cinnamon bears at work one time. And my husband calls me the next day and goes, why does your boob milk smell like Christmas? (laughs) And then I'm oh on the phone with he goes, why does it taste like Christmas? What did you eat? <laughs> That's amazing. It changes flavor as you, what, like whatever you eat carries over into your breast milk, whatever you're taking, you know, it's, it's such a fun, once again, curiosity, go and curious, laugh, mm-hmm. make it funny, have fun with it, you know, like. Totally. No, and I think that's that is totally great advice consistently because I feel like no matter and that's that's kind of how I think about because um, people are always asking like you know is do you focus more of education on high schoolers mm-hmm. or college students or whatever and I'm like I just feel like you're constantly evolving yeah. and there's you're gonna have different experiences at different points in your yeah. life and even if you read something five years ago. Mm-hmm it may not be applicable to, you know, now it's suddenly coming up for you or, and then you need to relearn it and, you know, or your body's different now. So you have to relearn it well, again. And there's things too that, well, I'll never need this information. Like I, I talked about, there's a toy that's specifically made for when you penetration isn't an option. And I had mm-hmm. so many people coming out of the woodwork, like, thank you so much for talking about this. I never thought this would be me, but that's me right now. Penetration isn't an option. It's so great right. that there is options for us, you know? And you may think like, well, well, we're having intercourse just fine right now. Well, you may not six months from now or a year from now, five years from now, like you said. It, it's curiosity. Go in curious. Take notes, you know. Totally. Speaking of sex toys and curiosity, we've partnered with Honey Playbox to help you find the perfect toy. Check this out. Hi there, Eva Bloom here with Honey Playbox. We're a pleasure products company run by a group of sex educators, queer meme queens, and toy connoisseurs passionate about bringing inclusive values to the adult industry. We believe that exploration and education are necessary for positive experiences of sexuality, and that prioritizing pleasure starts with versatile toys. We also have our very own sex toy fairy. That's me! I'm here to make your sex toy dreams come true. I listen to your wants, needs, and desires, and use a little bit of magic to pick out a toy that's everything you'd ever hoped for. We asked Talk Taboo fans to write to us for a personalized sex toy recommendation. So let's get into it. Today, we're picking out a perfect toy for Kiara, who let us know they're looking for a high-powered toy. Kiara says, Generally, I feel that my vagina and dimples aren't too sensitive, so I'm looking for something with high intensity to make me orgasm. They also let us know that they love to explore and switch things up. Hi, Kiara. Based on what you told us, Honey Playbox's Kong is going to rock your world. The Kong is a 6-inch realistic vibrating dildo that boasts some serious power... 
in nine vibration modes. It's also perfect for new adventures, a rotating head that swivels 360 degrees to create all kinds of new sensations. With three different rotation settings, you can mix and match for 27 different patterns. It's also bendable, so you can try new curves and shapes. Body safe materials are so important when choosing a sex toy, and the Kong is made from body safe, non-porous silicone. It's also rechargeable, so you don't need to worry about batteries and waterproof for bath or shower time fun. Thank you so much for your submission, Kiara. Here at Honey Playbox, we've got unique and affordable toys made from body-safe materials, and our team is always available to help you find the perfect toy for you. Check us out at honeyplaybox.com, and right now you can get 25% off your purchase with the coupon code TALKTABOO. You'll also get water-based lubricant or toy cleaner as a free gift with your order. Honey Playbox, where sexual wellness meets play. And now, back to our show. One thing, this is totally unrelated, um, but I guess... I'll try to segue naturally into it because I just wanted to ask you about it. Was <laughs> on your podcast, um, <laughs> you talked about sort of like boudoir photography and um, mm-hmm. and sort of like I guess yeah, the empowering experience of like taking sensual or uh, intimate photos. So I guess what I was curious about is like how I guess like how can people get more comfortable with with photos of their naked bodies and also without photos, just their naked bodies in general. Definitely spend some time with your naked body. I think that is number one. Let your partner spend time with your naked body in the light, you know, enjoy each other, mm-hmm. go in, go in curious. Um, I, it's weird. Uh, I do feel like photography has been weirdly a key component in my like body love journey, if you will. Um, it's just been interesting as I've been photographed through the years, uh, you know, between, so the vagina blog, obviously like I have to have pictures of myself all the time. You just have to kind of be okay with that, you know? (laughs) And then, uh, you know, I worked as as a photographer for a long time and I young in my motherhood, I was part of a a troop of uh, people that we were just working on creative photo product projects together for uh, years, really just trying to get better at photography and also just for the creative sake of it. And it was interesting because as I worked on that and would look at these pictures, it was there, it was just this weird, like, you know what? I don't look so bad. I don't look as bad as they thought I did, you know? And if I stand like this, Mm -hmm. maybe this, like, I actually, I, I like how I look in that and it's okay. There was something so healing about that. And so I think we get nervous to be in front of the camera. But the the thing I always tell people is like, you're never going to be younger than you are right now. And you're going to love that you have pictures of yourself, especially like with mothers, especially. I'm like, get in front of the camera with your kids. They're going to want to see pictures mm-hmm. of you with them when they're older. You're going to wish you had pictures of yourself with them when you're older you're not getting any younger. And and that isn't like an ageism. I don't want to put any sort of, cause I love age on people too, but it's, you have today and that's it. You don't know what else you have after this. Why not document it and fall in love with yourself in the meantime? No, I think that's so real. And I feel like, especially what you, the example you're giving with mothers, because I do feel like there's a lot of moms who are like never in the photo, right? They're always taking the photo mm-hmm. or like, I know, uh, women who are very much like, you know, nope, like don't photograph yeah. me. I don't want to be in it. Or they're like hiding um, behind other people kind of. And, and obviously I've definitely, you know, there's, um, there's a million photos that I don't like of myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, like, oh yeah. Same. I mean, I, 
I post stuff that I believe to be flattering. Right. Like, of course. I was going to ask, is it, you know? it easier for you with Instagram? Like you mentioned, you know, having to take photos just for your page. Um, does it make it a lot easier and more comfortable? Or do you still, I mean, you're human, so I'd imagine yes. But like, you know, how how is it in terms of just seeing, I think like, yeah, having photos is kind of part of your identity yeah, and, right job. and and your job like yeah. how how is that does it take the pressure off does it put more pressure on and you have more of an audience it depends probably this is the funniest thing one of my most engaged with posts ever in the history of the vagina blog is a picture that is at a terrible angle of my vulva hanging out of the sides of my swimsuit and it's furry stretched marked glory and I just, like, I posted it because I was like, you know what? <laughs> this is yeah. what I look like. And this is why I can't wear one pieces. That was kind of the joke because I, I really, I'm tall. I have a long body. If I put on a one piece, it's camel toe for days, right? And so, like, I posted that and people loved it. And I look at people like Sarah from the Birds Papaya. The work that she is doing is so essential. Mm-hmm. She's posting pictures of herself in terrible poses and slouching and sitting normally and, you know, you look at her and you're like, this is this insanely gorgeous person. And guess what? She has cellulite and rolls and stretch marks. And we would all be worse off without her. What if she didn't show up because she was worried about that? I get emotional talking about this because who else are we missing out on? Because they believe that their stretch marks mean that they shouldn't show up. That's horrible. I completely agree. I feel like it's so... Or, and and not even just in terms of like Instagram or photos. It's not wanting to go mm-hmm. on a date or not wanting to, you know, go out with friends or just any, any type of oh, limiting yeah. yourself because you're so much more concerned with, you know, whatever's going on with any part of your body, whether it's hair, face, body, actually. Yeah. So I think it's like, it's so, it, it makes me so sad because I feel like who knows, life is long it's also short and you just you know like yeah. it's just such a such a frustrating thing to live in a limited capacity oh agreed and go to a nudist beach you'll feel great because you'll be like look all these completely other normal humans are here too and they are having a great time right. even in the, I feel like locker <laughs> rooms sometimes you know I remember walking around yeah. when I was like 16 and I was like there were a lot it's mostly older people I feel like at a certain what I admire about aging is that I do feel like you just get more you're just like Oh, I'm getting worse every year, man. I'm like, I don't even care. Like my poor neighbors at this point are probably like, can you like put clothes on to like take the trash out and stuff though? Because. (laughs) And I love that. I think it's so great to just be like, I don't, why, why, why would I waste my energy? Why, why are we wasting our time obsessing? And the worst part is the worst part. I spent my twenties in my gorgeous 20 year old body hating it. Why did I do yeah. that? Why did I waste that time? Like, it, it just makes me so sad that I spent so many years in self-hate while I had this gorgeous, luscious body. Why? And it's, But it's always that. It's always like, I feel like with my friends, it's, it's always looking back at like, oh my God, look at what I looked like five years ago. Look what I looked like 10 years. And it's like, well, you look like that now. Or like, you're going to be saying this exact yeah. same thing. Yep. One day you will wake up and you realize that you are in that part of your life right now. And that is when the second part of your life begins and you start taking your trash out in your undies. It's fine. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so, so, so much. I guess um, just to wrap up, like, 
what is the future of the vagina blog? And I guess people can find you at the vagina blog. That's pretty crystal clear. So what is is the future of the vagina blog? For you. The future of the vagina blog. You know, my goals for 2021 are to pretty much just keep trucking. I've got some really fun stuff coming up, working with some really amazing companies. Something that has been a foundation of the vagina blog is people want to know about all the, like, we have so many new cool products coming out on mm-hmm. the market. Is It's just, it's like so exciting to see that like sex toys aren't always shaped like penises anymore. We've evolved finally. And more and more products are coming out to help with periods and period pain relief. And uh, it's just really exciting. So I'm currently, so I just signed up. I'm going back to school this semester and I'll be taking my audience along with me. My goal, I really want to go for it and become a sex therapist. So I'm I'm working on getting my license in clinical social work. That is so amazing. Congratulations. I'm excited to follow along with that. Thank you. Congratulate me when I'm done. Right now, it just feels like a real scary journey. I but have. you started it, and that's like that is actually the hardest step, I think. I think we'll do. <laughs> so I, I'm excited. I'm excited about all of that. But yeah, it's. I, I'm hoping it's going to be a good awesome. year. Cool. Well, yay! Thank you so much, and um, yeah. everyone follow the Vagina Blog. Please do come over and have fun. I live on Instagram for sure, but the Vagina Blog podcast is available anywhere podcasts are available. And then there's the vaginablog.com. Yes, you will learn a lot for sure. And hopefully, when <laughs> I know I learned so much in this conversation. I'm like, wow, it's, awesome. I have a lot more to learn. <laughs> yeah, there's so much. Curious. We are going curious. You're right. right. And I think that just like, yeah, approaching it from, because even I could feel my body like, tensing up and some of the parts you were talking about but I think yeah having like being that's why the name of this podcast like asking for myself because it's like just being open to asking questions can take a eliminate a lot of that fear and just help you learn stuff and you know not that things aren't still intimidating but they don't have to be amen thanks for tuning in and hey what are you going to ask for yourself this week? Head to our Instagram at askingformyself and or at talktaboo to share what you've learned and what questions you have. Catch you next time.